Well, dear friends, I now ask you to please turn your prayerful attention once again to 1 Corinthians and the 10th chapter. This evening we arrive in our week-by-week consecutive ministry going through this epistle of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and the verse 11. These words, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. The Lord helping this evening. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, has, the beginning of this chapter, warned us, has he not, of the many in the Old Testament, particularly those that passed from Egypt and were led out of Egypt, and on their way to Canaan, many of them fell. Many of them sinned against Almighty God. Many of them saw mighty things. They saw the pillar of cloud, as we thought last week, that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. They all passed through that Red Sea as God parted it. You can't imagine what an awesome sight that must have been. All of them drank from that rock also. That rock, as Paul says, that followed them. They saw mighty signs and wonders. The hand of an almighty God preserving well over two million people through the wilderness for 40 years. How he fed them every day. How he clothed them. How their, even their clothing didn't wear out. Provided food and sustenance. Their shoes didn't wear out. And yet, God was not well pleased with them because they began to grumble and complain and many of them went into idolatry, which the Lord had warned them about. The Apostle Paul, remember, is drawing a link here between those of the Old Testament and us. And he is warning how we should watch against sin how we should watch against pride and how we should watch against using our Christian liberty in a wrong way. He was very careful to use his Christian liberty in a right way. In fact, at the end of chapter 9, he spoke at great length about that, didn't he? He said, even after I have preached, he said, I so buffet my body, I so bring it into subjection, lest after I have preached to others, I am become a docimus. I should be made a castaway or made useless, rendered a hypocrite, rendered a useless minister. Of course, the old saying is true. People will watch you before they listen to you because there are so many hypocrites around. But there is also the other problem is we can fall into 
great temptations. It's not just also causing others to, to sin, but ourselves. If we're not careful, we can fall into great sin. The Christian cannot fall from grace, but he can fall into great sin and great harm and suffer great chastisement from the Lord. Think of the many that perished there in the wilderness. An entire generation perished. All men over 20 and above fighting age perished in the wilderness. They didn't see the promised land. Only two men survived, Joshua and Caleb. And Paul is drawing our attention to this. Even Moses, remember Moses didn't see the promised land. Moses, although he was a meek man, and yet he sinned, he struck the rock twice. And the Lord told him, for that sake, he could not enter. He was meant to speak to the rock, as we thought. Because the rock was struck once. The rock was Christ, we are told. And Christ was struck once for our sin. And Moses had lost a blessed opportunity to indeed even speak to the people of how Christ was that rock, that rock that was struck once for sinners, and now we know because he's been struck once for us, he doesn't need to die again and again. But our Savior, the Lord Jesus, having been struck once and having suffered once for the sins of his people, is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God our Father. And yet, while he has died for our sins, we have to be so careful because we can let down our witness and we can bring the testimony of Jesus Christ into great disrepute, can't we, in this world. Paul will have to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. He warns them how they have to be very careful when they take the Lord's table. He says we must judge ourselves lest we be judged. And he tells us at the close of that section, for this reason many, verse 30, he says in verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. It's all part of the Lord's chastening, isn't it? Upon those who do not watch and pray. And remember last week, the Apostle Paul, after in chapter 9, having told us how he himself has to guard against sin, sin without and sin within, and then he tells us of this great number of people that fell and who the Lord was not well pleased with in chapter 10. And what he did there was he told us how those people in the Old Testament, and what he's doing is he's making that link and that application with two ordinances, as we thought. Baptism and the Lord's table. Paul is moving in that direction now. He tells us that they were all baptized unto Moses. How? In the cloud and in the sea. Chapter 10, verse 2. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. They ate manna. There was a blessing 
We're told in the Psalms they ate angels' food. And they were all baptized unto Moses. It was a, if you like, I used the illustration last week as they were faced with Pharaoh on the one side, and then the Red Sea. They had a choice, didn't they? It's why they go back to Pharaoh or be obedient to Moses and God and pass through the Red Sea. And it was a wonderful picture of baptism. There was obedience in it. Remember what Peter says concerning baptism. He says it's the answer of a good conscience. Baptism, of course, pictures a number of things. The primary thing that baptism points us to is that we are a new creature. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are buried with him in baptism, just as he says baptism is a figure whereby we are buried with him in baptism and raised in newness of life. Coming out of the water is a picture of newness of life. But for them, as they went into the Red Sea, on their part it was that of obedience, wasn't it? And in chapter 10, he speaks of two ordinances. The other ordinance we saw, what was it? It was the, they all drank of that, that spiritual rock, verse 4, that followed them. And yet many of them fell. And then later on, he says, in like manner, he says here, with regards to the cup, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And yet you can still partake of that cup of communion and yet still do terrible, idolatrous things. Just because they drank from that spiritual rock, just because they drank of that water that flowed from that rock, wasn't an immediate sign to blessing, wasn't an immediate place of blessing, was it? Many people take confidence in the, the two ordinances, I said last week, we don't use the word sacrament. And the reason for that is the word sacramento has to do with something mysterious. There's nothing mysterious taking place at the Lord's table. It doesn't become the Lord's body. We don't believe in that erroneous and heretical doctrine of transubstantiation, do we? We don't accept that. It is a symbol of Christ's shed blood. and The bread being a symbol of his body given for us. Neither do we take confidence in baptism. They all were obedient in going in the sea. And a man can be even obedient in going in baptism. But we don't rest on our laurels, do we? We don't rest on yesterday's faithfulness to the Lord. We have to continue to be faithful in the Christian life. This is why he says here, take heed. Now, something very interesting. As we come to this chapter here this evening, I want you to notice in verses 22 to 23, there are like sort of two bookends. You notice he says in verse 22, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then he says in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but 
all things edify not. Now, do those words not ring a bell? Look at chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. They're sort of like two bookends, and we're in the middle of these two bookends, to take heed to how we walk, to watch and pray against temptation. There are many sins he warned us about last time. Remember in this chapter, verse 5, between chapter 10, verse 5, to the verse 10, there are five sins listed there. The first, remember, is lusting after evil. Evil things in revelry. It says, but with many of them, verse 5, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were for our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We have the same temptations, don't we, of lust. We've warned about this many times. The Lord Jesus tells us that sins are in the heart. It's not so much what comes out of a man's, or goes in a man's mouth, but what is in a man's heart that defiles him. The heart is full of defilement. All the seeds of sin are in our hearts, are they not? And we have to watch against them lest they rise up. So there was the lusting after things, evil things, we're told. Then there's idolatry, verse 7. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Think of that idolatry, that time when Moses went up to the mount to receive the law, and the Lord would write upon the tables of stone, and he had come down, and brought them down, and the people rose up. They had made a calf, and they worshipped it. They hadn't long come out of Egypt, and they make an image. They rose up to play. It was a terrible day. Thousands were killed. The Lord's judgment came. We have to watch Paul and John also warn about idolatry. John says, my little children flee from idols. Then there's the third. If you notice verse 8, neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Think of the sin there at Baal Think of even how Balaam and Balak Caused the people to err. Couldn't curse the people because they were blessed. But the Moabite woman came in and there was terrible fornication on that day. And the Lord destroyed. It was an awful thing. And then there's the sin of tempting God. Look at verse 9. We saw it last time. What is tempting God? Well, it's, it's trying his patience. Neither let us tempt Christ. Of course, it's not 
God can't be tempted as we'll think tonight. Inwardly. But it means testing, it means trying his patience. And some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. They continued day after day, groaning and grumbling against Moses in the wilderness. And then fifthly, notice verse 10, murmuring and complaining. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by of the destroyer. Remember that time where the sons of Korah and the many others were swallowed up in the ground. Suddenly, a great devastation. And despite all, men still continued to sin. And despite all these people had that suffered this judgment, they had all the signs. They had the the cloud. They had the fire by night. They saw the manna every day. There was a hardness in their hearts. And when they began to grumble, particularly against the manna, they made out as if Egypt was so good. But it wasn't good. What was Egypt like? They were making bricks. They were working in the heat of the day, being whipped every day. They conveniently forgot that they were slaves being beaten. They had no freedom. They forgot the heat of the sun. And so they allowed themselves to be utterly disillusioned, my friends. And so what they did is they charged God and Moses with evil. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured. And you know, we can fall into that very easily. We forget the pit from whence we have been taken, friends. It's a good exercise in your Christian life and in my life to often reflect back on the Egypt of our past life and how we were slaves to sin and how we were shackled to this world and how we were disillusioned. Let us never grumble and complain against God, but let us always, every day, give thanks. I say it's a good exercise even in prayer, especially if you find it difficult to pray. Begin with thanks. Count your many blessings every day. Write them down, number them, and write them over the years. How good the Lord has been. Raise up Ebenezer after Ebenezer. The good things that the Lord has done, and you will be so surprised. Think of how he's provided for you and kept you and made you content in Christ, helped you in difficult times. And so we have to be very careful. As we said, they, the people experienced in type the two ordinances. That's been clearly seen before. They were all baptized in the sea. They all drank from that same spiritual rock. And this is what Paul will now move to those two ordinances. In chapter 11, he will speak about the ordinance of the Lord's table and then baptism into Christ. In chapter 12, despite all of those blessings, those types, and they saw mighty things, they fell. As I said, baptism 
indeed was an answer. Our baptism is an answer of a good conscience. And they were right to go in the sea, but they had no, could not rest there. And they all drank from the same spiritual rock. Now, let us come to verse 11. Here, in this chapter, what we will see are words that we need to hear tonight. If ever we think that we are devoid from temptations, well, we need to take heed. Because common temptations that they face, we will face in our lives. Firstly, have a look at verse 11. I want you to notice, first of all, by way of introduction, these words are for us. Look at verse 11. Now all these things, verse 11, happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Think of it, these people didn't take heed. And the things here now are written for our admonition. Now this word here, admonition, it's the Greek word nothesia, which really means for our counsel. You've heard of nothetic counseling. And here God is counseling us. This is for our counseling. This is for our caution. Whatever we read here is for our caution. To what end? Well, the end of the world has come. What does he mean? Notice. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition or counseling upon whom the ends of the world are come. What does he mean? Well, this is a very striking phrase. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, we are living in the last epoch, my friend. And as in the last epoch, sin is abounding in the world. There was great temptation in those days. But you and I are living at the end of the last epoch. And we will see this from Scripture. Think of the first epoch. There was the pre-flood age. It's believed that the flood took place somewhere around the year 1656. So from Adam right through to Methuselah. 1656 years. Then there were the days of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then you have this time of the exodus here. Then you have Joshua and uh, the book of Judges, don't you? Then you have the period of the kings. And then you've got the, the age of the prophets. Where they're all foretelling. Of course, prophecy began in Genesis 3.15. But there was that particular time when God was speaking to this nation Israel. That he was going to send the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have that intertestamental age of 400 years between the book of Malachi and Matthew. So from the beginning of the world to Christ's coming was 4,000 years. And there's been 2,000 years now since Christ to where we are. And now we are in the last age. Let me give you a few verses to show you that. We are living, as it says here, upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quoted from Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And Peter said these words in Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. And then he says later, and this is that which ye now see and hear. Peter was quoting there from Joel chapter 2 verse 28, where Joel said, in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be given. And men will prophesy and those tongues, the gift, the supernatural gift of speaking in those languages were given on that day of Pentecost. And that was referred to as the last days. Peter said, you're living in the last days. And then we also have, do we not, in Hebrews 9, in the verse 26, where the Apostle Paul says, concerning Christ's death and his suffering, he said, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world. Paul says we're now at the last epoch, at the end of the world. There's one final climactic event to come to pass. We are living at the time of the end of the world, the last age. And then in Hebrews 1.1, we know this verse very well, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. These are the last days. Peter, again, speaking in 1 Peter 1.19, and there he's speaking about the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have been purchased, not with silver or gold, but he says in 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. There's one final event to come, and that is his coming again. He says it in the book of the Revelation, chapter 22. Lo, I come quickly, suddenly. He shall suddenly appear. We are living in the last days. The Apostle John says it in 1 John 2, 18. Little children, it is the last time. We are living in the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there shall be many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Meaning, we are, as I said, at the end of history. It's the last chapter, as it were, of this world's history. And this is why Paul says here, upon whom the ends of the world are come. My friends, do we realize how privileged we are to live at the end of the world? But this comes with enormous responsibility, doesn't it? Because we don't have, or we, should I say, we have far more light than they had in the Old Testament. And we are reminded that with more light comes more responsibility. But we're also told that at the end of the world, things, and I will, if you just turn to Matthew 24, I want you to notice what the Lord Jesus said 
to his disciples as he took them up and spoke with them there. Rather, they took him to see the temple as they overlooked the temple there on the Mount Olivet. And uh, I want you to notice how he said things are going to be in the last time. They ask, when will the end of the age come? And, uh, well, he, he begins by telling them, doesn't he, that not one of these stones shall be left standing on another, speaking about the temple, how it will be utterly destroyed. And then he says, after that, the world is going to get worse. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and then things are going to get worse. And then he says in verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and shall, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And then he says this, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Iniquity in the whole world is going to abound and the idea, the, the, the Greek word really means exponentially. Sin is going to be increasing, increasing, increasing. The world is not going to be a, be a good place. It's not going to be a halcyon age. It's going to be an evil time just before the Son of Man comes. Verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Even the church, the professing many in the church who are pseudo-Christians will wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then notice, and then shall the end come. And so we are told that here, coming back to 1 Corinthians 10, where we're told upon which the ends of the world are come, that's us. How much more if, if sin wasn't as a great then and it is now, how much more ought we to take heed? And furthermore, we have been given more light, more responsibility. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have the things that we have. And you look at the world now, we can just turn on the computer and before our very eyes, click of a button, you can almost buy anything and see anything. Lured things. We are infiltrated with materialism, terrible sex, nudity, vanity. The world has got worse. And as you look at society, it's broken. As you look at the church today, it's not what it was. And furthermore, the great arch enemy, Satan, he knows his time is short. How much more are the temptations upon us? Revelation 12, 12, we are told, there, 
For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So as the end of the age draws near, Satan, who is also a tempter, or the great tempter, he's on the rise. And Peter warns us that he walks around as a roaring lion. The world is worse. Sin is worse. And there's all kinds of things before our eyes and our ears. And then there's going to be the final judgment. So we're right near. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. But we are told that the ends of the world have come upon us. Now notice, he drives this point home to us in verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. You see what Paul is saying? While it is not possible for a true child of God to fall from grace and into perdition, he is able to fall and receive the chastening of the Lord. And it can be very painful. And this is where we need to pick up now in verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man. And they've always been there. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, I want us to think about three things in these verses here. Notice with me. Firstly, there are temptations before us. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. We think, and we'll think about all these temptations that are common to us. And already the Lord has kept his people and he's kept us. But there are new temptations and there are new trials every day that we will face. So that's the first thing I want us to think about. And then secondly, I want us to think about the faithfulness of God. Notice, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which he are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, and very importantly, is our responsibility. Wherefore, verse 14, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, the Christian doesn't just sit back and say, God's faithful. I have nothing to do. There is something the Christian must do. Flee. And all sin really is idolatry, isn't it? It's caving in, giving in. But God is faithful. And my friends, there will be temptations and trials. Now the first thing I want us to think about, and we're going to think about the various temptations and trials that can and do come upon us and they come through varying ways. James speaks about the various trials and temptations that come upon us. Peter speaks of the manifold temptations, doesn't he? 
But what do they mean? They're not all the same. They come from different quarters. Now the first one we need to think about, and this is one that people really stumble with, is what God puts us through by, firstly, I want you to notice, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as has come to man. Firstly, the temptations that come through God's providence. There will be temptations. Now, it is very clear that God does not tempt. We will see this from James. But God has decreed everything that comes to pass, hasn't he, in this world. And there are instances, as we'll see now in a moment, where God does use the word tempt to try his people. We think first of all of Abraham. If you turn there to Genesis 22, verse 1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. That's the word that's used, Genesis 22, 1. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. Here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, take thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. So we're clearly told there that the Lord tempted him. Now in this sense, we don't use this word as if God is putting a temptation there. God never tempts to sin. That's the first thing. But he does test, he does try our faith. There's no temptation to sin. God had decreed and ordered everything. In fact, if you turn to Hebrews 11, we have the commentary on this. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And that he had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Why did, why did, why did God do it? And why did God know that Abraham would faithfully succeed in this? Well, because A, he gave him faith. And he gave him faith, look at verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up. That's Isaac, even if he, even if he did slay him. From the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So as he was about to slay Isaac, that was a test of his faith, but God provided, did he not? A ram in the thicket. So he was tempted, but in that right sense. His faith was tried. We're told that, aren't they? Again in James, you, you, you know, if you read James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus there, he says in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But what God does do is he does try our faith, doesn't he? And James goes on to explain by the Spirit here, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. So this tempting of the Lord is never to sin, but it is always to try our faith. And let me say this is, 
the first area, let me bring application, friends. This is the first area where God will tempt or try us. It's been said, God gives a faith. He tests a faith. And he rewards a faith, doesn't he? It's all of him. But it's, it's for our good. Think of Job. Another instance. There's Job. And uh, we know how the Lord said unto Satan, Job 1.8, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man? And the Lord said, You can take all these things away, but you just don't harm him. And the Lord worked all and everything in Job's trial for good, didn't he? And my friend, you have to realize that God has ordered providence. He has ordered the days of our life. And we will be tested. We will be tried. But God never tempts us to sin, does he? Never say, I'm tempted of God, as James says. Neither he tempteth any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted of Satan, but he said, the prince of the power of the air cometh, but hath nothing in me. There was no latent sin. He was tempted outwardly. The devil presented many things to him, but it had no effect upon his heart. And the Lord has put his spirit in his children's heart. And therefore, this is why James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't say, the devil made me do it. You hear people say that today. The devil, made, the devil doesn't make anybody do anything. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts. And so we have to be so careful, don't we? God does test us, but he never does tempt us. He orders things in our life, trials. 1 Peter 1.6, uh, Peter writing to Christians scattered in Bithynia and all over the Cappadocia. In 1 Peter 1.6, he says, though now for a season, he says, if need be, that is if God determines it, Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. God will put you through many trials. Why, Peter? That the trial of your faith, he says, being much more precious than that of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. God puts his children through trials, through difficulties. And sometimes the word will use it as a God is tempting, but he's not tempting us to sin, he's testing us. As I said, concerning Job, and even concerning Abraham, there are many other examples. As that hymn we'll sing later, Afflicted saint to Christ draw near, thy Savior's gracious promise hear, his faithful word declares to thee, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. The people would be tried, in the wilderness, wouldn't they? We have those words in Deuteronomy when Moses is bidding the people 
farewell, he says, he turns to them and he says in Deuteronomy, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Those things were there to try them, to test them, to purify them. And then we sing in that hymn, let not thy heart despond and say, how shall I stand the trying day? He has engaged by firm decree that as thy day, thy strength shall be. Thy faith is weak, thy foes are strong. And if the conflict should be long, thy Lord will make the tempter flee. For as thy days, thy strength shall be. Should persecution rage and flame, still trust in thy Redeemer's name. In fiery trials thou shalt see. That is, as thy day, thy strength shall be. I remember the Lord Jesus, he said to his disciples amidst all the trouble, what did he say? In thy patience possess ye your souls. As we wait on the Lord, as we trust in him, we don't, can't see sometimes in the, in the trial what God is doing, but we can trust him and we can trust him for strength, friends. Look at the text. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. Look at the saints that have gone before us. Look at Elijah. Look at these men crying out, but the Lord was their help, was their strength. And you and I are blessed with so much more, aren't we, in the New Testament? And we see our Savior and we see everything being fulfilled. We have so much more. But friends, let me warn you, the world is worse than it was then. And therefore we ought to take the more earnest heed because the world is worse. Sin is abounding. We read it there, didn't we, in Matthew 24. The world is waxing worse and worse and the love of the many is waxing colder. But we have the Lord. What should our approach be, our attitude be, when we are tried? James says, rejoice. You know, there's two things we can do. We, we can become very disheartened when trial comes. But James says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. God's doing something in your life. He's going to test your faith. The trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You see, patience is a daughter of faith. Faith waits by patience, but patience must have her perfect work. Wait on the Lord. And you'll have more patience next time. And you'll say, the Lord is working something for good. I went through the last trial. The Lord is helping me now. And you, what else do you do? You don't despair when trials come. What did John say? Well, he said, year of God. 1 John 4, 4, little children. And overcome, have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Christ is in you. 
You're born again. You're born of the Spirit. And you, can't, you are overcomers. That's what the Lord has said, hasn't he? And he that overcometh shall inherit all these things. And remember, he himself overcame the world. He overcame the devil. Remember, the devil came those times to him there in the wilderness. And what did he do? Every time he, he quoted the word of God, it is written. And that's what you must do. And what I must do. You know, as a young Christian, I was taught it was good advice. Learn a Bible verse for every situation of life that you can think of. If it's money, learn a verse on money. The love of money is the root of all evil, isn't it? If it's on anything, learn something from the Word of God to strengthen your soul and say, it is written, it is written, and strengthen your soul in that. Well, our Lord is in his people. And he, even on that night of his great trial when he was betrayed, he said, the prince of the world cometh, but hath nothing in me. John 14, verse 30. And if you have Christ in you, my friend, God is able, look at the text, able to make the way of escape. Christ is always the answer, isn't he? His word, his promise will not fail you. Problem is we fail to come to God's word, don't we? We fail to trust in his word. We fail to hope in his word. The psalmist says, I hope in thy word. Do we hope in God's word? What's another form then of temptation? Well, Satan can tempt, secondly. Does he not tempt? Well, we're told that Satan comes and tempts. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul has to say to the Corinthians, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And there's many ways that he can subtly come and tempt us. He can tempt us to despair. He can tell us that we've sinned beyond forgiveness. He can tell us many things. He can tell us that God doesn't care. He can tell us that God's not looking. He can tell us that we can get away with it, that God won't judge. What are we to do when the devil comes? Well, we're to resist the devil. That's what James says, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He may, not might, but he will. He is so afraid when he sees a Christian praying. And when a Christian has his Bible open, because he knows he's, he's going to be defeated. So James says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Resist the devil. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And that's one way you firstly resist the devil. Cleanse your hands. Don't carry on in sin. You're not resisting Satan if you, you're holding sin with your hands and you're going on. 
You have to resist it. Satan and all sin. Something else, remember the word. That's what the Lord Jesus did when Satan came. Remember there in Luke 4, he said three times, it is written. And then eventually Satan left him and went his way. Something else, you will find this as we think about these temptations that are common to men. Ordinary people can bring temptation unwittingly or without a cause before us. They just happen in an ordinary course of events. We can think of the Apostle Paul when he was about to head to Jerusalem to suffer, to bear witness before Nero. And there in Acts 21, we are told how Agabus came and prophesied concerning the things that he would suffer. Uh, that, uh, and there were Philip's daughters as well. And there were the disciples. And all this has been told, Paul. And we read how Agabus says, he took Paul's girdle in Acts 21 and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus the Holy Ghost saith, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and of course that was Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, what they weren't doing, what they were doing was not evil, but there was a temptation, no doubt, for Paul, wasn't there? I don't want to hurt my brethren. And uh, do I have to go through with this? There can be a temptation to do the wrong thing. Even think of Peter, when the Lord Jesus said he would suffer and die. And Peter said, forbid. And the Lord had to say, get behind me, Satan. We can be tempted by well-meaning people to do the wrong thing. We have to do the will of God. So easy there, isn't it? By even well-intentioned people, by friends, to dissuade us to do what is right. And then, fourthly, there can be evil people. Temptations. Think of Potiphar's wife. Tempted Joseph, day after day, day after day, till she lay hold of him and pinned him down. What did Joseph say? How can I do this thing and sin against God? He resisted, didn't he? And daily we have to resist. There will be people, my friend, and temptresses and tempters, and all kinds of things before your eyes. As I said, we have computers, and there's everything before our eyes. We live in such a materialistic day, such in a lurid and sexually driven culture and world. Everything is before our eyes. We have to watch and pray. And people are not ashamed anymore to flirt. People that are married. I'm not talking about church people, but I'm talking about people in the world. It might be material things. 
We're told to flee from idols. And there's, there's everything at our disposal, isn't there? We can waste so much time looking at things, gleaning at things. But worst of all, our own hearts, fifthly. That's the greatest temptation. It's what's within. The tempta- plenty of temptations without, but the greatest is within. That's why the scriptures say to guard our hearts, for out of them flow the issues of life. There are so many things vying for our attention. Even some legitimate things. But we have to give our hearts to the Lord. Remember, this is an evil world. And never say, God is tempting me. He's put you in this world, but he's put his spirit in you, child of God. You might be strong in the Lord, in the might of his word. And so notice, as we come back to all of this, and as we seek to draw to a conclusion, but God is faithful, isn't he? who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. So don't say the devil made me do it. Don't say God is unfair. He has made you to live in this day, in this age. He's determined the bounds of our habitation. He's brought us to this church to hear the word. What do you do? How are you kept? By God. We're told in 1 Peter 1.5, we're kept by the power of God through faith. And you have to feed your faith on the word of God, don't you? Day by day, in the word, be in the word, be in prayer. Watch and pray against all temptation, all kinds of temptation. Why? Because he will make a way to escape. He will help you. He will make you able to bear it. Look at the text. But notice, thirdly, it is our responsibility to come to God. Sometimes, as James says, you ask and you receive not, because you ask amiss. You ask that you might spend things on your lusts. But do we ask for grace? Do we ask for the right things? You know, when we come to the table, think of that, these two ordinances, and we think of the blood, we think of the bread. We have to think what it cost for our Lord to save us. He had to give his body. He had to give his blood, didn't he, to save us. That's why when we come to the table, we have to discern the Lord's body, as Paul will tell us. We have to think hard and we have to examine And we have to realize all that it took to save us and to redeem us. Paul has to write in Romans chapter 8, what does he say in Romans 8? We owe nothing to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh, he says. But we're debtors to God's mercy, aren't we? He says in Romans 8, you're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. But we are debtors to Christ. 
and to his mercy. And you see, it's by attending to the means of grace. As we think of our baptism, going down in the water, we died, coming up, rising again with him. And every time we come now to the table, we're reminded of what it cost. And therefore, we're going to keep ourselves. And we're going to come to God, who will help us. And he will give us strength to flee from idolatry. May God help us. We are so weak, aren't we? But God will help us. And let us never say, we're not able, but we are able. Paul could say, I could do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He'll give you trial. Uh, he'll give you faith for every trial. He'll give you strength for every tribulation, child of God. The Lord is able to keep you and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. There has no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, don't forget your responsibility. Flee from idolatry. First thing you do is pray and act upon God's word. Live it out. Amen.